to introduce our very distinguished uh, speakers, uh, Gary Geddes uh, and Anne Erickson, who have led very interesting and varied lives. Uh, but I think I, looking at their uh, backgrounds, I, I think in terms of your careers, you've spent quite a lot uh, writing about politics with a small p and a big p. Um, and uh, so let me just introduce uh, both Gary and Anne, starting off with Gary, if I may. Uh, Gary, then, a uh, Canadian poet and writer, a native of Vancouver, British Columbia, uh, taught English and creative writing at Concordia University in Montreal for 20 years before returning to the West Coast, where he was appointed Distinguished Professor of Canadian Culture at Western Washington University. He's also taught at British Columbia Institute of Technology and University of Victoria, and he's uh, received an honorary Doctor of Laws degree from Royal Roads University in Victoria. He's written and edited over 35 books, including 17 books of poetry, as well as fiction, non-fiction, drama, translation, criticism, and anthologies. Uh, his work has been translated into five languages. Uh, his most recent work of non-fiction, I think, uh, is called uh, Medicine Unbundled, A Journey Through the Minefields of Indigenous Healthcare. I think that was your latest one. <laughs> um, Anne Erickson is also a prize-winning Canadian author, a biologist and uh, an environmentalist, and still a practising biologist and environmentalist, uh, currently working uh, on um, shoreline restoration uh, on the coast of British Columbia. Her most recent novels are Decomposing Maggie, In the Hands of uh, Anubis, Falling from Grace, High Clear Bell at Morning, uh, and The Performance. Uh, they're very much a double act, I think, and so splitting uh, your time with us uh, into two, they're speaking first and then Gary. So please uh, join me in giving a very warm welcome to uh, Gary Gellis and Anne Erickson. Well, thank you very much for coming. I get to go first because I'm the most jet-lagged. So I'm <laughs> the most apt to fall asleep in the second half of the program. Thanks a lot. <laughs> I'd like to thank uh, Tony and the Institute for inviting us. And uh, I'd also like to acknowledge the Canada Council for the Arts who have provided some funding for our travel as well. Uh, we'll be going on from here, this is our first stop, uh, to several places in the UK and then on to Germany for some additional readings. Um, so the logistics of carrying books with us uh, for sale were just a little overwhelming. So we, didn't, we have not brought books for sale, but we do have uh, a number of um, some materials uh, for promotion. And if you get in touch with us, we'll make sure that you get a copy of whatever it is that you're interested in. So um, I'm going to be reading from my latest novel, which is called The Performance. Um, and as Tony mentioned, uh, we both write about uh, political issues, and my work uh, mostly concerns itself with environment and also social, um, social issues in the context of, of environment as well. Um, this book was a little bit of a departure from my, um, my previous writing. Uh, it, it has that doesn't have the environmental context. 
other than an urban ecology. Uh, it's set in New York City, in Manhattan, and it's the story of uh, two relationship between two women, a young classical pianist named Hannah, and a woman that uh, she encounters uh, on the streets of, of Manhattan. So I'm going to start by uh, reading from the beginning, and I'll, then I'll talk a little bit about my process um, during the writing of the book. Uh, can everybody hear me okay? Sure. All right. It's such a nice, intimate room, and hopefully we'll get some good conversation going afterwards. It started this way, October 2011. I stepped from the stage door of Weill Recital Hall onto 56th Street, and as I raised my arm to flag one of New York's yellow taxis, I saw her on the other side of the street, watching me from the shadows. When the cab pulled up at the curb, she turned and headed toward 7th Avenue, as if she'd waited for a glimpse of me before she could leave. Sorry, I made a mistake, I said, dismissing the driver. Then Jay walked behind the vehicle and hurried to the corner, hoping she hadn't disappeared into the subway. The woman had hovered at the edges of my awareness for months, flitting in and out like a leitmotif. In September, I saw her outside after my Bach recital, shuffling across the road in front of my cab, her angular, lined face illuminated by the headlights. She lifted her arm to shield her eyes from the glare, and my own face had peered out from the cover of the rain-striped program in her hand. The first time I noticed her was in April, on my way to my debut at Alice Tully Hall, when we bumped shoulders in the street crowd on Broadway near the entrance. The color of her eyes, an, unwashed, an unusual washed-out blue, had reminded me of the rare, pale violets my mother Catherine used to grow. Following strangers on the streets of Manhattan is not my style, but the frequent encounters with the woman troubled me, or blame it on Chopin, whose music had the power to leave me quite outside my rational self. I spied her half a block ahead on 56th, walking briskly, too briskly for her apparent age, and I hurried to catch up, falling in far enough behind that I hoped she wouldn't notice. She turned right on Broadway and headed along the curb of the street toward Columbus Circle. I tracked her through the roundabout, past the monument, past the Trump Hotel, the sidewalks packed with pedestrians, street vendors, the roads filled with the noise of cars and honking cabs, the air smelling of exhaust and of smokies, kebabs, roasting chestnuts. I'd avoided walking on the streets of New York alone at night. I barely knew the city, my time taken up with classes, lessons with my teacher Leon, recitals, endless practicing, and until I met Mrs. Flynn, the hustling of performances wherever I could find them, hotel lobbies, restaurants, and once an old folks' home where most of the audience wore hearing aids. The woman stopped at an oversized clear plastic bag of returnable drink containers left at the curb. She extracted a few stray bottles and deposited them into a cloth bag she pulled from her pocket. Why on earth would a fan of classical music have to collect bottles? She crossed the street to Lincoln Center and headed up 56th and along West End Avenue into a neighborhood I had frequented during, during my years at Juilliard and still passed through en route to Leon's flat for lessons three times a week. A twinge of fear returned as the crowd thinned out in the quiet residential streets. 
About to give up and make my way home, I realized I stood a block from my apartment. Did she know where I lived? An uneasy chill crept through me. But instead of turning east, the woman crossed West 86th to a Gothic-style church on the corner and stopped at the bottom of the wide stone steps that led up to the grandly carved entrance. Not keen to approach her, not yet, I pressed myself into a graffiti-marred alcove across the street that reeked of urine and watched, feeling like a voyeur. A rake-thin man emerged from the church's curved portico into the diffuse glow of a streetlight and descended the steps. The two spoke, then she exchanged her stash of returnable bottles for a sagging plastic grocery bag. They sat on the steps while the man continued to talk, his hands in constant motion. The old woman drew a styrofoam container from the bag, peeled off the lid, and shoveled the contents into her mouth as if she hadn't eaten in a week. The whole scene mystified me, the trade, the location, the time of day. The woman fi finished up her meal with a juice box and an apple, and after a few more minutes of conversation, the man retrieved a royal blue, a royal blue two-wheeled shopping trolley from the recesses of the portico and carried it down to her. Money appeared to change hands. They embraced. The man climbed up and resumed his position in the doorway, wrapped himself in blankets and stretched out, the knobbly soles of his boots protruding beyond the verge of the bedding, obviously homeless. Was the woman his social worker? Friend? Homeless too? The woman headed down West 86, the trolley squeaking along in her wake. I limped behind, favoring my blistered heel, across Broadway, past the entrance to my building, past Amsterdam and Columbus, and across Central Park West, halting in my tracks whenever she started down, when she started down a footpath into the park. More confused than ever, I watched as the distance between us widened and her silhouette grew smaller and less distinct until she faded into the darkness under the overhanging weight of the trees. I lingered in case she reappeared, but I couldn't follow. No woman in her right mind walked alone in Central Park at night. So Hannah, uh, who is uh, a Canadian and has been studying and now working uh, as a, a solo pianist in New York, um, discovers that this woman eventually discovers that this woman's name is Jacqueline and she is indeed homeless. What I was um, exploring in this novel uh, was the, the issues of, of privilege, uh, of, um, of homelessness. This book was written after the 2008 crash where a lot of people lost their homes, as, as many of you would, as you would all be aware of. Um, so how does, how does a writer write about these things, about people who are unlike myself? I'm, I've never been homeless. and. I'm not a classical pianist. The biography at the back of the book says I was kicked out of piano lessons at the age of eight for playing by ear. Uh, so I traveled to uh, Manhattan twice uh, during the writing of this book, um, once with Gary and once alone. There were some really nice uh, serendipities that, that happened. Um, I arranged a, a, a home exchange um, with a woman who lived uh, near um, Broadway and West 86th. Uh, she invited us to come and stay in her home with her because she couldn't be away when we wanted to be there. And uh, I, she, we arrived uh, from Canada and uh, went to this beautiful old um, courtyard uh, apartment building and there's apparently only two or three of them 
uh, designed that way with a, a kind of gardens in the, in the central courtyard. And went up to the apartment on the eighth floor and uh, the woman who answered the door ushered us in and took us to the room where we were going to stay and there was a, a grand piano in the corner and I thought, oh, I've fallen on my feet here, at least for the music uh, aspect. And then I set out the next day uh, to research the homelessness and I, I didn't really think I would find homeless people in, in that area of Manhattan. It's a pretty elite area and uh, really discovered them almost everywhere. I looked uh, around the corner from the apartment building, sleeping on church steps um, in Central Park, which was just a few blocks away, um, panhandling on the street near Lincoln Center. Um, I, on my second trip, uh, I uh, connected up with um, a homeless out outreach uh, team and uh, talked them into letting me go out with them in the middle of the night looking for people who are sleeping on the streets. Um, and that was really one of the most profound experiences, I have to say, of my life, to see what kind of conditions that people were living in. At that time, there were about 45,000 people sleeping in shelters in greater New York. Uh, and there were, I think it was about 75% um, of those people were families. And half of those were children under the age of 16. So it was pretty shocking to see how the demographic had shifted from the kind of the economic collapse. Uh, in terms of the music, I uh, went to a lot of uh, music when I was uh, concerts when I was in, in New York, uh, some with Gary and some on my own. Um, I also read a lot of bio, uh, biographical material and uh, some uh, anthologies about uh, famous classical pianists. My agent is a music buff, so. He read everything that I wrote, and, and uh, I was feeling comfortable that he wouldn't let it go out into the world without it ringing true, and uh, that uh, was sort of the most worrisome part of, of the novel was, um, was that aspect, because I, I didn't have that background, but so far I haven't had anybody complaining. So I'm going to uh, just read a short section. Um, uh, about the, the music aspect, so so Hannah is, made, is making it big in this in this solo piano world, which is a difficult thing to do, and she has uh, garnered the attentions of uh, a um, patron, Mrs. Flynn, uh, who um, who is quite manipulative. Um, so she has uh, just had a concert. Okay, here we go. So she just played a concert uh, where she was hoping that Jacqueline would come. She had given her um, a ticket, a free ticket, and uh, wasn't sure whether she had showed up. And Hannah had made some errors during the, during the concert and was feeling um, sort of uncomfortable about that. After the concert, uh, Mrs. Flynn has arranged uh, a, a party in, in Hannah's honor at a restaurant um, in Brooklyn. So this is the section from... from from that scene. The cab dropped me off at the waterfront restaurant Mrs. F. had rented for the soiree. The lights of the bridge arched overhead like a bracelet, and the skyline of the financial district was lit up across the East River. Inside, waiters in tuxedos wove through the crowds with trays of champagne and hors d'oeuvres. A chamber group played Schubert, while at least a hundred people mingled in tuxedos and gowns more daring than my own. I longed to be home in bed. 
Mrs. Flynn met me inside the door, passed off my coat to a server and took me by the elbow. What happened out there tonight, dear? I'm sorry, I said, searching for a way to explain. Never mind, these things happen, but let's not make a habit of it. She raised her chin and scanned the crowd. Michael's around here somewhere. Michael is her son. He's been anxious to see you again. I didn't want to make small talk with her self-centered son. Was she trying to orchestrate more than my career? I spotted my teacher, Leon, across the room, too engaged in conversation to notice me. Mrs. F. paraded me through the crowd like a favored pet on a leash, introducing me to an endless string of CEOs, bank managers, gallery owners, politicians, the room pulsating with the egos of Manhattan's elite. I couldn't put a sentence together and pasted on a smile, nodding in response to the undeserved praise. There he is, Mrs. F. said, and steered me toward a handful of people chatting near the bar. Michael, look who I have here. Michael turned, a glass of champagne in his hand, and his eyes lit up when he saw me. He wore a sports jacket over a turtleneck rather than a tux and appeared relaxed and confident in his informality. When he kissed me on the cheek, I took a half step back, thrown by the familiarity of his greeting after only one previous meeting. Sorry, I missed your concert, he said. I had an exam today and couldn't get away early enough, but I hear you wowed them. I responded with the same bogus smile I'd been giving everyone else all evening and was relieved when Mrs. F. interrupted to introduce me to the others at the bar as well, making a point of specifying their occupations. Mr. Larson, an executive officer at Goldman Sachs, Mr. and Mrs. Bergman, financiers from Germany, and Mrs. Taft, a white-haired matron and member of the board of directors of the Lincoln Center. They praised my performance and asked me a few questions and went back to their conversation. When it shifted to holiday destinations, I excused myself and escaped outside to the deck. I leaned against the railing and sucked in the cool night air. Water lapped at the breakwater, and out in the current, the murky outlines of boats slipped by with a pulse of engine. The Brooklyn Bridge curved overhead across the East River to meet the lights of Manhattan, which painted the sky above the horizon electric orange. How many of New York's homeless made the choice to jump from those bridges the way they did in Toronto? I had crossed the Bloor Street Viaduct at dusk during my lowest time in that city, passing the signs that read 444 Help. I'd peered down through the series of long metal rods known as the Luminous Veil, designed to stop jumpers. Below, pathways twisted through the sumac and thistles down to an oxbow in the river, tarps and tents visible in the clearings an idyllic spot for a campsite, except for the polluted river, the train tracks, and the exhaust-spewing freeway that shared the corridor. I couldn't comprehend at the time why the campers would sleep in such a noisy spot with the constant roar of the traffic from the Don Valley Parkway alongside and the subways clattering overhead across the viaduct. Maybe they saw it as their only choice. Enough schmoozing. A voice spoke from behind, and I turned to find my... My, my manager, Randall Stone, a champagne glass in his hand. I needed air. Bit stuffy in there, isn't it? He said, gesturing with his chin toward the gathering. Nice restaurant, though. The man bordered on handsome in a conservative sort of way, his hair professionally styled, mustache finely trimmed, a perfect smile. I couldn't imagine him wearing anything other than an expensive tailored suit. It's a bit pricier than I'm used to, I said. 
You can afford it. I laughed self-consciously with his straight-faced estimate of my expected income the day I signed his contract had sent my pulse racing. He lit a cigarette and rested his elbows on the railing beside me. He exhaled over his shoulder, turning toward me and said, What do you think of the music business so far? His words slurred together. His breath smelled of pot mingled in with the tobacco. Oh, I said, and shifted away down the railing, but he shifted along with me until our arms were touching. I became acutely aware of my expanse of bare skin. I love it, but it has its ups and downs. It's a tough racket, he said. You think you can handle it? According to Leon, he ranked among the best impresarios in the business. This man had organized my American tour and arranged the Wild Hall recitals, but only recently had we spent time together. At, on, at Mrs. F's suggestion on plans for the European tour, he'd been professional and courteous, but something in his manner made me wary. I sensed he resented taking orders from Mrs. F and having to solicit opinions from a 23-year-old who'd never visited Europe. I'm learning, I said, like every pianist who did this job. Touché. He bumped my hip with his and lowered his voice. A little slip-up on the hammer clavier. A whisper of panic fluttered in my stomach. Along with Mrs. F, this man could make or break my career. I'm sorry about that. You don't need to apologize to me, he said with a slant grin. I'm paid to make you look good. I glanced behind me through the French doors to the party. I should get back. He pushed himself away from the railing and pitched his cigarette butt, tip glowing like a firefly in the dark, over the railing and into the river. You want to be a star, he said. I want to share the music I love. He leaned in, his breath warm and moist in my ear. I can make great things happen for you. A surge of heat rose from my chest up through my throat and into my cheeks. I stepped from the railing and said, You and Mrs. F. already have. I should go back in. She'll wonder where I've got to. He gave a cutting laugh. Mrs. F., that's what you call her? Fitting, Mrs. Effing Flynn, you don't know what you've got yourself into. He stumbled toward me and brushed his fingertips along the curve of my breast. I backed away with a pitiful squeak. You know who to call if you need help, he said with a smirk, swaying on his feet. I turned to flee and found Leon standing in the open doorway. Ah, there you are, Hannah, he said. I wondered how much he'd witnessed. He took my elbow and steered me inside. You must never let yourself be alone. With Mr. Stone, he said, he's your manager, not your friend. Thank you. You notice how many times she apologized? It's very Canadian of her. <laughs> Uh, some years ago, I was in uh, Chile during the Pinochet dictatorship, and I interviewed a man named Jaime Hallas, who edited uh, the Analysis magazine. And I was interested uh, talking to him. He was a huge man with a large black beard, and uh, he had a portrait of his foreign affairs editor behind him on the wall. Uh, the foreign affairs editor had been murdered by Pinochet's thugs some months earlier. And uh, so I said, 
to him, I asked him several questions about literature and, uh, in Chile, and he said, we have very strange notions of censorship here. He said, your book may survive, but you may not. <laughs> and uh, it, it was a period of interviews with uh, human rights victims, families of the politically disappeared, families of the execute, politically executed, and, and so on. And uh, it was deeply moving to me, and it made me think a lot more than I had before about uh, the relationship of art and politics. I had pretty much been engaged as a writer uh, with a political bent up to that time, but I began to think about the role of the writer in Canada in particular. And uh, a phrase of, well, a phrase of the American writer, Don Marcus, uh, who wrote the Archie and the Hedebel poems, I don't know if you know, like a cat and a cockroach. A cockroach who comes out at night and uses the family typewriter, but can't get to the upper case, so everything's like E.E. E. Cummings in lower case. Anyway, he said, publishing a book of poetry in the United States is like uh, dropping a feather into Grand Canyon and waiting to hear the echo. Uh, it's, it was not unlike that in Canada in the early days when I, st when I started writing. And Margaret Atwood's comment on this is that in Canada, you can say anything you want in a poem because nobody is listening. <laughs> so, uh, Robertson Davies had his own thoughts as a novelist. He said, being a writer in Canada is about as auspicious as being a manufacturer of yogurt. <laughs> um, and this, this was in the days before yogurt became a big part of the yeah. Now, now, now you'd probably be better off being a manufacturer of yogurt than being a writer. So, so for me, the I issue was made even more difficult by a kind of political or a, a, an ethos of uh, anti anti political ethos in Canada and in the U.S., where the end of ideology was was bandied about and the notion that art should have any political uh, ambitions or, or intent was considered uh, uh, improper to say the least. So I, I faced a, a lot of difficulty getting uh, any attention to the work I was writing and uh, uh, I came to uh, do a, a lot of analysis and reading about the subject and there was one American poet named uh, James Scully who wrote a book called uh, Line Break. And he said, the phrase political poetry is not a contradiction in terms. He said, it's an instructive redundancy. And uh, for me, that was a, a, a really valuable thing to, he to hear because I had felt very much that you can't open your mouth without your ideology very quickly becoming evident to people. And uh, I had also a comment by, by Robert Haas, which I like, I like to quote. He said, because rhythm has direct access to the unconscious, because it can hypnotize us, enter our bodies, and make us move, it is a power, and power is political. Uh, Kafka, Kafka was another 
person who had some, some interesting things to say about the subject, and one of them was that literature should be the axe that breaks the ice within us. I, I think, for me, writing has always been an act of engagement with, with social issues. And, uh, I love personal poetry and confessional poetry, but I don't seem to be able to do that. Uh, I, I find myself drawn to, to political issues. And I'm going to start by reading you a couple of poems like, uh, uh, that come out of that kind of political engagement. The first is a poem that uh, was given to me, in a sense, uh, when the Killings at Kent State University happened in 1970, on the 4th of May. Four students were killed, and nine others were wounded. As the Ohio National Guard opened fire, sent 211 rounds of assault weapon ammunition into the crowd. Nobody was ever prosecuted for that, and I, I was overwhelmed by the story and uh, felt this impulse that I needed to write about it. So I spent six years working on poem, on, on a poem, on various poems about this, and they were all just crap. They were diatribes against American foreign policy, and there were so many bad poems on that subject already that I, I realized that another one from a Canadian pipsqueak would not be necessary. But it still troubled me. So I was invited to Edmonton to the University of Alberta as a writer in residence and uh, I went out one day in the winter to a place called the We Book Inn on 82nd Avenue, White Avenue. And uh, I f was drawn to the political science section of the, rather than the poetry section that day and uh, pulled out a little red paperback, serendipitous moment there too. It was called The Killings at Kent State by that famous American journalist, I.F. Stone, who wrote I.F. Stone's Weekly. And even his enemies, political enemies, read that, that piece every week to see what the situation was. There were four details about one of the victims, Sandra Lee Scheuer. She was a speech therapy student. She liked to roller skate. She was very tidy, and she was not uh, actively political. And somehow or other, all those things just coalesced in my head immediately. I sat down and I wrote this poem in a few hours. And I chucked all the other stuff that I'd been doing away. And uh, something I hadn't expected came out of it. So I'm, I'm just going to share, share that with you. You might have met her on a Saturday night, cutting precise circles clockwise at the Moonglow Roller Rink or walking with quick steps between the campus and the green two-story house, where the room was always tidy, the bed made, the books in confraternity on the shelves. She did not throw stones, major in philosophy, or set fire to buildings, though acquaintances say she hated war, had heard of Cambodia. In truth, she wore a modicum of makeup, a brassiere, and could no doubt more easily have married a guardsman than cursed or put a flower in his rifle barrel. While the armories burned, she studied, bent low over, low over notes, speech therapy books, 
pages open at sections on impairment, physiology. And while they milled and shouted on the campus, she helped a boy named Billy with his lisp, saying hiss Billy like a snake. That's it, tongue well up and back behind your teeth. Now buzz, Billy, like a bee. Feel the air vibrating in my windpipe as I breathe. As she walked in sunlight through the parking lot at noon, feeling the world a passing lovely place, a young guardsman who had his sights on her was going down on one knee as if he might propose. His declaration unmistakable, articulate, flowered within her, passed through her neck, severed her trachea, taking her breath away. Now who will burn the midnight oil for Billy, ensure the perilous freedom of his speech? And who will see her skating at the moon glow roller rink, the eight small wooden wheels making their countless revolutions on the floor. That was a surprise to me when it, uh, when it happened, that poem. Uh, it wasn't an angry diatribe uh, like all of my original efforts. It was uh, a, a lesson to me that, that anger doesn't necessarily produce good poetry. Uh, what needs to happen is that you have to you, you have to activate or make use of other elements in your in your uh, repertoire other than uh, simple uh, anger and passion and so on. I also learned a little bit about how to how to construct a poem. I think because uh, there were very structural things happening in that poem that uh, came from paying close attention to the language as I, as I was writing it. The, for example, the image of the woman who could more easily have married a guardsman, cursed to put a flower in his rifle barrel. In the second half of the poem, the young man is going down on one knee as if he might propose, etc., etc. So it was a good learning experience for me. I want to read you another short poem about uh, politics, but you'd never really know it was about politics uh, without me telling you that. It's called What Does a House Want? It's about being in the Middle East after the signing of the Oslo Accords when uh, my friend John asked for a blind Lebanese Canadian poet and I went together to interview Israelis, Palestinians, politicians, settlers, and so on. And while we were doing that, we noticed that even after the signing of the Oslo Accords, when there was a good deal of optimism amongst both Israelis and Palestinians, the IDF was still destroying Palestinian houses. If anybody's kid got in trouble with the law, the family's house would be destroyed. And uh, it, still, it still goes on. So I thought I'd better write a poem <clears throat> on behalf of the houses. It's called, What Does a House Want? A house has no unreasonable expectations of travel or imperialist ambitions. 
A house wants to stay where it is. A house does not demonstrate against partition or harbor grievances. A house is a safe haven, an anchorage, a place of rest. Shut the door on excuses, greed, political expediency. A house remembers its original inhabitants, ventures comparisons. The woman tossing her hair on a doorstep, the man bent over his tools and patch of garden. What does a house want? Laughter, sounds of lovemaking to strengthen the walls. A house wants people, a permit to persevere. A house has no stones to spare. No house has ever been convicted of a felony unless privacy be considered a crime in the new dispensation. What does a house want? Firm joints, things on the level, water rising in pipes. Put out the eyes, forbid the drama of exits and entrances. Somewhere in the rubble, a mechanism leaks time. No place familiar for a fly to land on. Just a, an example of, uh, of some of the kinds of work I've done as, as a poet. I also think, in, in, in addition to having a a political edge, writing also has a healing component. Uh, certainly for me as a writer, it's been a healing component, a way to, 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 make, to, to make some sense out of things that, that, are, that are troubling me. And uh, I love this comment by Dylan Thomas on the subject. He had many demons to cope with, not just his alcoholism, but uh, all sorts of other things. And, but he was able to say this, out of the inevitable conflict of images, inevitable because of the creative, destructive, and contradictory nature of the motiv motivating center, the womb of war, I try to make that momentary peace, which is the poem. The, the, the word that was so important to me was the, the word momentary, because it doesn't it doesn't last, you have to keep doing it, and that's why for, for me writing is a kind of meditative process almost that you have to pursue on a regular basis to, to make it powerful and useful to yourself and others. Now I'm going to shift to talk about <coughs> the, the work I've been doing in the last 10 years. I, I took early retirement in 98 from Concordia University in Montreal. And uh, I've had 20 years of, you know, I love teaching, but I've now had 20 years of total liberty to write. Well, liberty except that I retired too early to get a serious pension. <laughs> so, like many freelancers, I've had to do a lot of hustling as well, doing writer and residence uh, gigs along the way. and. Uh, uh, yeah, so, so, so what has happened during that time is I've been able to expand my, my work and there are some things that, uh, that even a long poem can't handle. I was doing a, a, a first was a book called uh, Sailing Home, a sort of floating memoir about growing up on the West Coast. And the next book was a book about, uh, a non-fiction book about uh, a Chinese, 5th century Chinese monk named Hui Shen, uh, an Afghan 
who fled the persecution uh, in uh, the area we now call Afghanistan. He fled Kabul to China, where uh, Buddhism was uh, considered okay during various points in Chinese history. Not, no, no guarantee on that one, but uh, anyway, he, he is alleged in the uh, records of the Liang Dynasty to have sailed to the Americas in 458 AD, a thousand years before Columbus. And so I uh, suggested to a publisher that I would like to follow that monk's journey. And I happened to be in Af uh, in Afghanistan uh, two weeks before 9-11. So what I thought would be a, a somewhat self-indulgent and whimsical book about my experience pursuing this monk's journey turned into something quite different. It's as if the politics had sniffed the fact that I was in, in, in the area and uh, decided to, to, to uh, change the whole perspective on what I was doing. When I finished that book called Kingdom of 10,000 Things, I came back, uh, worked on it, uh, finished the research, I worked on it, and I began to think about Africa, all the disturbing things that were going on in sub-Saharan Africa. I had n no real intention of going to Africa, but a Canadian incident uh, really began to shift my focus. And that was the, ki the killing of Shadeen Abukar Aron in Somalia. The Canadian army tortured and murdered this young 17-year-old uh, Somali boy who had wandered into their camp at night hoping to find something he could take off with because of the poverty, etc. And I couldn't, I couldn't leave that, that story alone and I ended up going to Africa with the intent of writing about that story. Somalia was so difficult and dangerous at that time. Uh, Amanda Lindhout had been kidnapped. Other teachers from Ottawa had been murdered uh, in the country. So I ended up going to Democratic Republic, Republic of Congo, Rwanda, Uganda, Ethiopia, and Somaliland, not to Somalia proper. And I did human rights and trauma research. I went first to the criminal court in The Hague, and I interviewed people there and I got a number of contacts uh, in Africa that I wanted to meet, the people I wanted to meet. And I did uh, interviewed people uh, on the issue of cri the crimes uh, against humanity that they'd suffered, uh, resource wars, uh, former, former child soldiers, people, women who had been raped and infected with HIV in, in, uh, in Rwanda. So it was not exactly a, a Cook's tour. Uh, it, was a, it was a really a, a difficult time. I didn't really know how to handle the, these things as, a, as an individual or as a writer. And many times I thought, what in hell am I doing here? I'm not a political scientist or an old Africa hand. But I met a woman named Nancy uh, in northern Uganda. She had an English name but spoke no English, uh, which is very much a colonial situation that still prevails in Canada. Uh, we have all, all these indigenous folks who do indeed speak English, but have these strange colonial names, like Rita Joe and so on, like, like that. 
So uh, Nancy was, I was sitting in a compound with Nancy and the translator, and she was uh, telling me how she was attacked by the Lord's resistance army. She had had her nose, ears, and lips cut off by the young rebels that attacked her. Her friends were killed. I could feel the rage building up in myself as I was listening to this story, wanting revenge against uh, these people. I was thinking, Joseph Coney, a bullet is too good for you. You need to suffer slowly for what you've done. In other words, I'd retreated into my reptilian brain and was wanting a violence against the perpetrators. So finally it all just exploded and I said to Nancy, what should be done to these people who've mutilated you and killed your friends? She didn't bat an eyelash. She said they should be restored to the community. They were mostly abducted boys. The woman was just leagues ahead of me, uh, ethically speaking. You know, I'm a, I'm a mere listener, counseling uh, retribution and revenge, and she was the victim counseling forgiveness and restoration. She had been able to put her shoes, her feet in the shoes of these boys and realized uh, that they had been turned into professional killers by these uh, sociopaths, Joseph Coney and his pinch people. So anyway, I came home uh, and uh, I was trying to write about this and, and uh, I was having a hell of a time trying to tell these stories without people reading them and sort of giving up for the, the violence. He, he, you can only take so much of this stuff. You get sort of burnout, obviously, as a reader. And I was feeling it as a writer. And I remembered that scene with Nancy. She could see what a mess I was in, so she changed the subject. She said, Gary, your name is like the Acholi word for bicycle. <laughs> and I, I just was so relieved. I said, Nancy, I'm so glad to be mistaken for an Acholi bicycle, because the name Gary in Japanese is the word for diarrhea. <laughs> <laughs> and suddenly there was the violence and the humor, and uh, it was something that was absolutely crucial to that book. And it reminded me of Jean-Paul Sartre's comment that uh, no matter how terrible the subject is, you need to present it with an essential lightness. And it was the struggle to find that kind of essential lightness that has been uh, with me, not only in that book, but in the most recent book about indigenous health that uh, Tony has mentioned, uh, Medicine Unbundled, a journey through the minefields of indigenous health care. <clears throat> not a very sexy title. Uh, I went across the country. First I went to the TRC hearings, the Truth and Reconciliation hearings in Victoria, uh, to, as a day off from writing about uh, tragedies in Africa, trauma and tragedy in Africa. It was a bit like a busman's holiday because I got there and I was hearing all of these stories, testimonies coming across in the pub public eye. But there was, it was something whimsical about the location. Here we were learning about all of the damage we'd done to indigenous people and where? In the, in the Empress Hotel in Victoria. <laughs> so I thought, 
indigenous humor is active at choosing that, that location for talking about the effects of colonialism in Canada. So I met a woman named Joan Morris who became a kind of friend and mentor for me during the journey that followed. She was telling us the story of what happened to her mother in the segregated Indian hospitals in Canada. She said my mom was taken at age 18 in apparent good health to the Nanaimo Indian Hospital and she was not released until she was 35 and she was a physical and emotional wreck when she left. And that was one of those stories that you can't hear without thinking a lot about what could have been going on during those, those years in the hospital. So I met Joan at lunchtime and uh, made the mistake of mentioning that I was a writer. <laughs> Her eyes grew big and she leaned across the table and she said, do I have a story for you to tell? So uh, I came to think of her as she who must be obeyed uh, uh, because I ended up spending the next five years trying to pursue the answers to that question, what happened there. And it was, it was a, a powerful, uh, enriching, but very challenging experience to, to, to interview elders across the country who had these horrific stories and didn't really want to be talking about them. And so I had to try to find a way to get them to trust me. I sent out a hundred emails thinking I could use my academic skills and do the research and get this all done and then write the book in a couple of years. Well, I didn't get a single response to those hundred emails to ban councils. So I said to Joan, Joan, what in the hell am I doing wrong? She said, well, where do you want me to start? <laughs> she said, the trouble I have with white people is they don't know how to listen. <clears throat> she said this with a note of this uh, irritation in her voice, and it was a comment she reminded me of several times along the way. Learn how to listen. So what this meant was that I couldn't do that kind of rapid research, uh, efficient rapid research that I thought I was used to doing. I had to get to know the people and I had to uh, establish a friendship before I could hear these stories. And so I learned quickly that word of mouth contacts are the only way of establishing the kind of trust that makes the sharing of stories possible. So Joan introduced me to her relatives and friends and the stories I heard, many of them had, had similar, uh, were quite similar. First I learned that the segregated Indian hospitals were not established to help indigenous people. They were put in place to keep them separate from a racist white society in Canada. And as a result of that kind of racist basis of uh, the, the, the institutions, like the residential schools, they were poorly staffed and chronically underfunded and uh, there were some notable exceptions to the staffing. There were some good people but for the most part there were a, a, a lot of pedophiles and in the priesthood and in the staff and so on. And all of these things affected the treatment. The, the patients 
in the residential schools who didn't like being raped by the priests and uh, staff and showed their dismay, discontent, were put in the sick bay and a lot of them caught tuberculosis. They were forced to sleep in a shared bed with a child with tuberculosis, open sores. They ended up on the colonial conveyor belt to the hospital and they, were, they might have spent years there getting a cure, those that didn't die. They were treated to forced sterilization, a lot of them, gratuitous drug and surgical experiments, and even electric shock treatment to destroy the short-term memory of sexual abuse. A lot of uh, a lot of stuff. I could go if I had uh, more time. I could go into some of those stories, and some of them are rather painful but beautiful stories because of the kind of rapport I developed with these people, and they shared a lot. And so it was enriching for me. It was it was painful to try to process this material, but it was also enriching to be able to share the story and the resilience and the courage of these people, as I had experienced in Africa as well. So, uh, in, in the end, the book is not just about uh, abuses in the healthcare system. People were damaged for life by these things. The residential school has created dysfunction in the communities uh, that is still rampant, absolutely rampant. Some are overcoming this, and the ones that I talked to and shared their stuff with me are amongst those people who have a lot of integrity and grace under fire, basically, and uh, they're struggling, things are changing. But the national narrative in Canada, if you haven't noticed, does, hasn't really uh, included this until just recently. I went to school in Canada and never heard a thing about these things. All we ever heard about was the Coeur de Bois, who had a few helpful natives showing, showing them how to survive in the winter and doing most of the work paddling and so on. Uh, so it was a, a shame to be learning this at my advanced stage of decrepitude, learning all this stuff I should have known as a child and that should have been part of our national narrative. Instead, we've been, we like to think of ourselves as uh, the nice country, uh, number one destination for the wretched of the earth, and yet we have fourth world uh, reserves where the water is polluted, the housing is uh, substandard, and where the suicide rate is at 15 times the non-indigenous population, especially amongst young people. So my, part of my aim was to get my fellow Canadians to understand and acknowledge what's been, what's been going on. I think the Carl Jung, the psychologist, is right when he said that to become a mature individual, and I think also a mature nation, you have to acknowledge and come to terms with the dark side of your personality and yourself. So for me, it was a, a time of coming to terms with my own dark sides and uh, thinking about uh, Canada in, in, a, in a quite a different way. And uh, so I'm shocked by what I've learned, but I uh, absolutely feel enriched by the experience and uh, very excited that 
a lot of changes are beginning to happen in Canada. N never as fast as I want them to happen, but uh, now, Trudeau government, uh, Justin Trudeau had all sorts of good things to say about what he was going to do to change the relationship with indigenous people. They offered $380 million, were supposed to be spent over three years uh, addressing some of these issues. At the end of the first year, the Liberals were asked what they had spent, and they said $11 million. Now, that's not a third of $380 million. That's the pittance, actually. And uh, quite, why, why did you only spend that much? Well, that's, the only no, that's not enough people applied for it. What do you mean applied? You know where the problems are. People don't need to apply for this. They get, so, you know, the government has all sorts of problems and the promises are not being kept and so on. So there are these issues, but amongst indigenous people, I can feel a new light and a new possibility. And so I'm very excited about that. And pleased to have a little bit of, uh, made a little bit of effort in this direction. One of the things that has happened is that a class action lawsuit is being brought against the Canadian government for its abuses in the medical uh, history, in the hospitals and in the sanatoria. And this will be like the TRC hearings. And it means that the segregated hospital story I've been talking about is the missing chapter in the Book of Failed Promises to Indigenous people. And it's now part of the national narrative. So anyway, I think I'll just stop there uh, because I've probably overrun my, t my time and uh, want to open it up to any questions that you might have for, for Anne and for me. Okay.